So, this morning we're going to be speaking of, uh, I'm going to be, the sermon is entitled, On My Honor, and it is, uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm 26, and if you're using that pew Bible, it's uh, page 459, but go ahead and turn there and be ready to follow along here in a few moments. Our key words for our worshipers in training this morning are integrity, walk, and righteous. Integrity, walk, and righteous. So on my honor, I will do my best to serve God and my country, to respect authority, to be a good steward of creation, and to treat others as I want to be treated. So says the oath of the Trail Life USA. It's an outdoor boys program that I'm involved with that uh, is relatively new. Many don't know about it. But it's an outdoor adventure program for boys that's positioned on a distinctly Christian worldview. This program started from a split from another group that had, in many ways, compromised their honor and compromised the oath that they had actually spoke of. So this oath that we talked of this morning is one that every trailman must memorize, and prayerfully we encourage them to live their lives by. It reminds him to live, first of all, for the Lord, and that from that, respect for his country, authority figures, the world that God created, both naturally and politically, as well as just love for his fellow man and his fellow trailman, his fellow uh, brother, sister, would all emanate from that. So I preached somewhat of a sermonette by this title for those who were at our camp out in the fall. I talked to the boys about this. But being that that was kind of a smaller venue and um, I just didn't really, I didn't feel have time to explore it as I wanted to, so I kind of expanded that out for today. Uh, felt there was much more to say about honor than I had an opportunity to do that day. But, so we talk of honor. So we say, on my honor. When we say that, we say there's other times that we use that. What is honor? What is it that when we talk about, you know, we, we, we call a judge your honor. You know, that's how we refer to him. We speak to... Uh, We talk about this thing called honor. Stories have endured for generations through folk culture about the pursuit of honor. We hear of the hero running off to war to to pursue his honor and and to right a wrong or or to stand for the weak and oppressed. Men throughout history have sought honor. They staked their lives on it. They fought for it and they have died for it. Wars have been fought in its name. Nations have risen and fallen for it. There have been duels conducted in the name of honor. One such duel took the life of Alexander Hamilton in 1804. He was the former Secretary of the Treasury. It was waged with a man named Aaron Burr, who was a political rival whose honor was besmirched, he felt, when Hamilton opposed him over numerous political issues, which led to, the challenging, uh, to him challenging Hamilton to the duel. And it was a duel that Aaron Burr ultimately won. And according to him, his honor was satisfied. Is that the honor we talk about? Samurai warriors of Japan had a code of honor called Bushido, which stressed chivalry, morality, and loyalty. And these things were to balance out what frequently was a very violent life that a samurai warrior had to, had to live. The Pharisees of Jesus' time, contemporaries of him, they had a code of honor. And we don't have to look long in the New Testament. We see when this honor 
was, uh, was fractured, they felt, by what Jesus was doing. So they had that strict sense of honor. But does that mean that they were correct? So what is honor? Honor in the sense that we speak of it today is related very closely to integrity. Uh, Webster's Dictionary offers up these following definitions. Honor, a keen, oops, excuse me, a keen sense of ethical conduct. Integrity, such as a man of honor. One's word given as a guarantee of performance, such as, as we said earlier, on my honor. Integrity is the quality of being honest and fair. It's a firm adherence to a code of especially moral or artistic values. Incorruptibility. So we see the closeness of what these two words are. So to have honor is to have integrity. Integrity is the root of honor. Leaders, for instance, must have integrity as part of their makeup. Whether church, home, or community work, integrity always honors the truth. So what does it mean for the culture at large, and how is honor and integrity displayed by the world? Because quite often, we find that many people who are not even believers, they still place a very high value on integrity. Uh, You can go into Savannah, any long-standing businesses, uh, many of which are not even run by believers. They're built on the fact that they have dealt honorably with uh, their clients, and they will not lay waste to their good name. They stake their business reputation on their good word. Then there's others in the non-believing realm who use a facade of integrity to give a good impression while they're trying to use it to their advantage. They may not necessarily have integrity, as we're speaking today, but they want to appear as if they do so that they may use it for personal gain. Think of the Enron scandal of many years ago where the bad integrity of leadership led to the sinking of a giant corporation. And many people lost their jobs. Some people went to jail. So we see that even lost men value integrity to one degree or another, and yet they're upset whenever it's not displayed. But since honor and integrity are so highly esteemed virtues in society at large, we want to explore this morning the root of such a virtue. Is it a good thing? If so, why? You know, we should ask these questions about a lot of things. It's good, okay, we, we kind of take it at face value, honor, integrity, yeah, we want that. Why is it good? Have you ever thought about it? So what implications does it have for a Christian? So turn to Psalm 26, if you're not there already, we'll read it in its entirety. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, 
and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me, be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. So we see that David, who's the author of this psalm, he's a man who did not waver in his character. He knew where he stood with the Lord, and he knew his heart was righteous. David was a leader, and as such, he was closely watched by other men. We watch all of our leaders, whether believers or not, whether they're widely known or not, whether they're pastors or parents or politicians. I didn't mean the alliteration, it just happened. We are all leaders to some degree or another, and people are watching. Uh, Oddly enough, you know, through some leadership training I had at work this past year, uh, it was a big thing we had to go to spend the day, and one of our vice presidents was, and I don't know that he's a believer or not, it's not really the point, he shared an excellent story from his own life to illustrate this point. I'll share that with you. He said that, you know, every day that he was, uh, you know, he he goes to the cafeteria for lunch, and he said that um, every day that he he had this habit, he would go and he would look at the dessert case on his way in, figuring out what pie or whatever he wants to eat. Take note of it, walk in, get his food, come by, scoop up his dessert, and go pay for it. And apparently this was his habit. He did not realize how much of a habit until one day he skipped the dessert case on a whim. And he went, got his food, came out, paid for it. And then somebody came up to him, just a guy in a regular old uniform, just said, you know, we noticed that you didn't, how come you didn't want dessert today? Just, and he's like, what do you mean? He says, well, every day you go to the dessert case first. And he said, that's what, and that's where I get this point, that people are always watching you. If you're a leader, you don't know you're watching. He just was down there buying his lunch. He had no idea. And that was a very, it resonated with me. Because then, of course, this can be applied to many different realms of life, anything where there's leadership. And every single person in here is a leader to some degree or another. So then, having said that, what does it mean when David says, I have walked in my integrity? What does it mean to walk in integrity? Well, you've heard me use this term a lot. Your walk is the characteristic that you're known by. So you might say, John is a really honest person. I would trust him with anything. John has a walk that he has known and his, a characteristic that he is honest. Or you might have, Frank is a deadbeat who hasn't worked a day in his life. Don't let him near your wallet. Okay? There's, a, there's also a negative aspect to that walk there. So when David says, vindicate me, O Lord, I have walked in my integrity... I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. So, first thing to look at here is the fact that when we are walking honorably with the Lord, we're open to scrutiny. We're open to scrutiny by the Lord and by those around us. Think about this. If the police came and and at, knocked on your door and said, you know, sir, we have a reason to believe that you were involved in a crime, and we'd like to have you come downtown for some questioning. You're not under arrest. You're just a suspect, whatever. Okay. So 
you go down there. But you know that you're innocent. You have a solid alibi. You're not afraid because you know that you were 300 miles away when whatever thing happened. It was a mistaken identity, whatever. But you can stand up to the scrutiny. You can look at them and say, yes, ask me, try me, you know, prove me. I have no problem. I have nothing to hide. Integrity comes with a clear conscience, and it puts us under the microscope with no fear. Integrity comes with a clear conscience, and it puts us under the microscope with no fear. So, what I'm not saying here, people say, wow, David was perfect, right? That's what Jeff's saying. No, I'm not. Because that is not to say that Psalm 26 means that David is sinless, or that he's pompously proud, or that he's uh, illegitimately boastful. Because we'll see that later. If you know anything about the life of David, you know what I'm talking about. Rather, David was in a good relationship with God, and that reflected in his heart and in his conduct. So, if, da- if David were making a claim of innocence based solely upon his own merit and solely upon his own good works, then he would be boasting unrighteously. And he would not stand. Think of it. 1 Corinthians ten twelve. you know, it says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Anytime that we're standing in our own merit, in our own strength, in our own diligence, we are setting ourselves up for failure. So then, that that begs the question, what is the basis for integrity? Okay, David wasn't, he wasn't uh, boasting proudly of his own own merit. Okay, what is it? Well, look at verse 2 again. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart, my mind. For your steadfast love... Is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. It's very probable that David was thinking of a passage from Exodus 34. Turn there, if you will, to Exodus 34, verses 4 through 7, or the first portion of 7. It's very probable that he was looking at this passage, and you know this. This is when Moses had asked God to show him his glory. It says this, it says, So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went to Mount Sinai, and the Lord had commanded him, and taken in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord the God, a God merciful, the Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands. So David's foundation of integrity was based on the Lord's foundation of integrity, which was, of course, his own character and what he had revealed to Moses in the past generations. So it's interesting at this point in history that we would look and we'd see that the Lord is proclaiming this. This is how he describes himself. Steadfast love to faith and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. How often have we heard people, whether unbelievers or just unchurched or in whatever state of rebellion, would say, well, you know, I believe in the God of the New Testament. I like the God of the Old Testament. He's mean. He's cruel. 
He likes to inflict pain and suffering more than he likes to show love and grace. I won't dwell here, but we all know that that is not true. That is not the way that the Lord demonstrated his patience and his grace throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. His faithfulness is constant, firm. It's ongoing to all. He did not, think about this, that God did not visit immediate destruction upon all who deserve it, which, by the way, is all men who have ever lived. But rather, he extends his grace to the offender, constantly calling them to repentance as he does today. You don't have to turn here. I look, read from Acts 17. It says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It doesn't say some, and it doesn't say just those who are going to be Christians. All men everywhere are commanded to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. This, of course, being Christ. So all men are... are are commanded to repent, and God does not immediately snuff us out. That's a loving God. That is a God who shows grace and, uh, and grace upon grace to many. So we look then at verses 4 through 7. It says, I do not sit with men of falsehood, David continues, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence, and I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. So this kind of harkens back to Psalm 1, which says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, on his law, he meditates day and night. There's a Spanish proverb that says, Dime con quien andas y te diré quien eres. This means, tell me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are. Okay? Give you a little Spanish lesson. The verb andar means to walk, but here in particular it means to associate with. We are associated by those who, we're known by those whom we associate with. Doesn't mean we can't have uh, friends who are, who are non-believers. I'm not saying that. But we do know that 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 22, verses 24 through 26 says, Do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways and you will find a snare for yourself. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. Folks, People, let's just call it like it is, people judge us by our company that we keep. Now, sometimes this is unrighteous judgment, okay? Just as when the Pharisees judged Jesus for eating uh, with tax collectors and sinners. However, often it's a fairly accurate picture of what goes on in our lives. So we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater in this instance. We have to be careful about the company that we keep. When we're not walking well, when we're not holding fast to the word of God in our lives, when we tend to follow others into their sin. I do. 
I'm sure you're no different, okay? When I'm not walking well, when, for whatever reason, I've gotten away from, you know, Scripture, and I've not been studying on a regular basis, and I'm spending a lot of time with guys with whom I work, who are a bunch of great guys, many of them are lost, you know, I tend to find myself laughing more at their jokes and different things like that, and I'm following right into that. And, of course, you know, this should be a big flag that waves like, you know, hey, back up. You know, that's not what we want to do. But when we surround ourselves with the world as our primary friendships, and this is the, this is the division I want to draw here. I'm not saying don't have friendships. Well, I have lots of friends, very, very close, good friends that are worldly and, and do not know the Lord. However, they are not my primary friendships. I do not go to them when I have some you know, something that I really need to discuss that I can benefit from some godly counsel, okay? But when our primary friendships are worldly, we may as well just tie concrete blocks to our necks and jump into a deep cesspool because you will be corrupted to one degree or another, okay? However, when we are walking well, okay, when that's the characteristic of our lives, excuse me, when we, we'll be able to influence the world around us for the glory of our Redeemer. And the gospel should be preached by our words to these people. And live, and it should be preached by our words and our lives to others. And it should lead them to see you as a person of deep integrity. So, which brings me to this point. How does my life and claims of integrity lead others to view me, okay? Who holds me accountable in my life? Often it is the unbelievers with whom we're talking about and with whom we associate with. Now, some oftentimes, vindictively, they're quick to point out your defects. They're quick to say, hey, you know, what are you doing? You know, you shouldn't be doing that. And there are times in my life when... I have been convicted. God has used an unbeliever to bring deep conviction on me. Guys, that strikes hard. But there's other times when they do it with great concern. I have good friends, as I said, who are unbelievers. And they've brought things up to me before, not vindictively, but rather as great concern because they, they know they don't want to see your, because they value integrity as well to a certain degree. They don't want to see you falter in yours. Okay, well, who else holds me accountable? Well, God holds me accountable, of course. My family holds me accountable. You know, those closest to us. Um, And those around me. To go back to my trail life illustration, those boys hold me accountable as one of their leaders. Last year, a year ago, yeah, we we were camping at Tallulah Gorge, and we got there. We needed to go fill our water bins. Usually we go find a spigot somewhere. Usually campgrounds are very quick, so yeah, fill up, and that'll be that. This particular day, we did not realize that that particular campground, the main campground, was operated by Georgia Power. Long story short, there was a lot of misunderstanding, and I do believe I met what I want to call the meanest woman I've ever met in my life. And... It was getting very, very difficult, and there's at least one boy that was here that day that, that saw that, and um, it was very difficult because what she was doing was she saw all these boys come up. You know, I'd already asked, can we get water? Sure. She didn't realize we're going to bring all our boys or whatever, and 
Not that we're bothering anything, but she said, she came out and started raising a fuss. You can't be doing this. You got all these kids. You're just going to let your kids run around and do this and that. She was basing, she was painting with a wide brush and judging us unfairly by groups that have come before, okay? So, but it got to a point where she was being so scathing in her words and her false accusations against us, and I felt a lot of anger welling up within me, and I desperately wanted to say some very ugly words to her. And I am ashamed to say that had the boys not been there, I probably would have. I, I, I stand before you as honest as I can be. I believe that would have happened. But I looked back and saw 15 sets of eyes plus two adults looking at me wide-eyed. What are you going to do? You know, and We just thanked her, and we went on, got our water elsewhere. But, uh, and we also... I encourage the boys to pray for her that night. We can pray for her this morning. I haven't seen her in a year. She didn't send me a Christmas card. So um, anyway, so I just say that to say that, you know, accountability for integrity comes from a lot of different places. So ask yourself this. Does my life lead others to view God in a holy way? My actions and words should always agree with one another. When others see a man of integrity, we should be quick to point them to Christ alone. Point out that the only reason that this person is complimenting you is that you have been changed and that they can be too. It's a gospel opportunity. Okay? We don't sit there and say, well, thank you very much. I'm also, have I mentioned my humility? Okay? We don't want to do that. But we want to, we just want to point them to Christ because... He is the only reason. The only reason that people would say, look at me and give me a compliment is because Christ in me, because he has changed me. He's called me. He's redeemed me. You know, I know what my struggles are. I know what goes on in here and in here, you know, and you don't know what goes on in my head, but you know what goes on in yours, right? So we always got to keep the proper perspective of things. We also look at verse 8, it says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. I want to point out that when we're living a life of integrity, we will long for the presence of God and we will not dwell long in a state of unrepentance. This causes a disruption in the fellowship that we have with the Creator. Much as if you and your teenager get into a, a fuss about something and there might be some bad feelings, a little bit of grudge holding, things like that. There's a division there. Something's affected. Even though we're talking about this from a sinful point of view, you know, God does not do that to us. He always loves us the same. We can't make him love us more. We can't make him love us less. But when we are in a state of unrepentance, our walk and our relationship with the Father are affected. When we're walking well, we will love the communion of, the, the communion of saints, And we will long to be a part of fellowship at each and every opportunity. So many Christians around the world, as we prayed this morning, live in restricted nations. That is to say nations that do not allow the church or the the preaching of God's word openly. These brothers and sisters will go to great lengths at times, often at great personal risk to gather and worship together just as the early church did under the several Roman occupations and persecutions. So we have to understand that, 
do we, I mean, we learn from the persecuted church of today that it's a good thing to be able to gather here. You know, Lord has blessed us with, you know, numerous buildings, air conditioning and, and, and chairs to sit in and, and all these different things. But so many don't have that. And they would meet in secret. I think of the believers in North Korea who, if they're caught with a page from the Bible, you know, they will go to prison, usually to their death whether it's through malnutrition or through firing squad or whatever, they, they come down hard on them there. And there's many other nations. So think about that. You know, how much do I love the communion? How much do I love the gathering? How does a lack of integrity affect my relationships with others and lead them to view God? We talked about briefly already, but it leads people to view God poorly. They might say, if that's what a Christian is then I don't want any part of it. Heaven forbid that that is what people would say about you. So it's something very eye-opening to think about. Am I doing something that would lead even unbelievers to curse greater, even more so, the name of God than what they do already? Now, many times they're just using that as a, as a, as a wall to hide behind. But we have to always be open to is there some vestige of truth in what they're saying? Okay? It leads other people to sin. Well, they might say, well, you know, if John does that, he must, it must not be that big of a deal after all. We have to be very careful. What did we say earlier? You're always being watched by somebody. It'll lead people to not trust you. You know the story of Benedict Arnold... He committed high treason against the United States, and he defected to the British. Ironically, the Brits never completely trusted him. And they never gave him a command in their army. Why not? Because ironically, in coming over to their side, he proved himself to be an untrustworthy man and a follower of pride and money who would turn, turn at the dime. If he could do that to the Americans, well, he could do that to them as well. So they weren't going to give him an opportunity to fail them in a great way. That is not to say that his prior life, prior to treason, was you know, something incredibly um, you know, honorable. You can look, read about his life, but nonetheless, this is what he's known by. So it'll lead even those to whom have benefited you know, from your betrayal, I guess you can say, it leads even them to to not trust you. So when you make the claims of a Christian, people are always watching. And you often don't know it. That is when there is a cost when integrity is lost. Okay? There's always a cost when integrity is lost. Think about David. We won't go long into David, but just the remainder of his life was affected, as well as his entire kingdom, his rule, his family. You can read about the rebellion of Absalom and various other things that happened with his children. David's life was affected by his sin with Bathsheba. So that leads us to this question. Once it's lost, can integrity ever be restored? Can it be regained? You know, we mess up. Can it be regained? The answer is yes. It's not easy, but it's because there's always that cost. Turn real quick, look at Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. 
verses 1 through 10, it says, talking about Jesus, He entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. You know the song, right? So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And they saw it, and they, and, and they saw it, and they all grumbled. He's gone into the, be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus was a short-statured man, but he was a big sinner as well. But also, the bigger the sin, the greater the repentance. I also think of Peter, who denied the Lord, sometimes with blasphemies and with cursing. Denied him three times. And yet, you can look at the end of at the book of John, and you can see how Peter was restored. And that Peter went on to... Begin the church, if you will. You know, that God used him as one of the main instrumentalists in the organizing of the early church. Uh, the gospel spread throughout the known world at that time at an alarming rate, no internet or anything like that. And he ultimately died for his Lord. He did not deny him. Although, of course, we, we have the insight into, you know, in the book of Galatians that we learned about recently. But nonetheless, Peter was restored. Integrity can be regained, folks. First of all, what we're learning here, by admitting when I'm wrong and seeking to make it right. That's the very first step to regaining integrity. You've got to admit you're wrong. I don't care if it's to a two-year-old child or, you know, to, some, to the lady that's, you know, being so ugly and mean to you on a camping trip. I mean, you've got, if you've wronged someone, you've got to be quick to seek forgiveness, to quick to... Uh, to admit that wrong. True integrity will go hand in hand with true humility. True integrity goes hand in hand with true humility. In my life, no claim of righteousness, no words, right, hold as much water as when I admit fault to my wife, to my children, or to even my lost friends. Because I guarantee you, that's a redemptive opportunity. When I've really blown it, and I've gone to somebody and I'll you know, get down on a kid's level and I'll say, please forgive me. You know, it may not excuse whatever they did or whatever that caused me to blow up, but I, my sin is my own. And I have to take ownership of that. So as we said, David was not perfect. We can look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, see how he committed the sins of adultery and murder to satisfy his own covetousness. But then we can also look to one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 51, to see how he had the heart, a true heart of repentance with regard to those sins. You cannot read Psalm 51 and not just feel the passionate tears that he's crying over what he has done. So the bottom line is, when integrity is lost, there is forgiveness. So how are honor and integrity modeled in my life 
Okay, these are kind of some introspective questions that we need to ask. Well, at home and with your family, what do they see you doing? They're the ones that know you the best. What does your wife, your husband, your kid do? What do they see you doing? They see, they see me standing up here talking about integrity, and then on the way home I, you know, go and you know, do something stupid, steal something, technically, I don't know. What do, they, what do they see you doing? Okay, at work, are you known as a shirker, person who can't be trusted with a job? Are you someone who can be called upon to get a job done even when others are grumbling and complaining? And when you've already done more than what your counterparts are doing. Maybe you're the guy who's pretty much hauling all the burden of whatever the job is. And from a, you know, and maybe your boss keeps going to you because he knows that you're going to do it without complaining, and he just doesn't have the time or the ability to deal with all the complaining. And so maybe you're unjustly getting shoulder with extra burdens. Your integrity can show through that. What about in public? Is your word good when you're returning items to stores that maybe take them back without question? But perhaps you're shading the truth and lying in order to get around the return policy. Maybe there's a certain amount of the honor code that's involved with the return policy. And you know technically you shouldn't be returning this thing. But if you just set it up just so, you know they'll take it back. Okay? They may never know. God knows. So we look again at Scripture is replete with positive examples of honor and integrity. Uh, You know, David we've talked about. We talk about Samuel in 1 Samuel 12. You can look at that. You can look at Paul in Acts chapter 23 and 2 Corinthians 4. The list goes on. It's a lot. There's a lot of very virtuous, very honorable uh, characters from Scripture that we can draw on. But Scripture is also replete with negative examples as well. David, again, he made both lists, right? We, we saw how Peter had denied the Lord. We learn about Simon in Acts chapter 8. He wanted to purchase the gift of the Holy Spirit to use it for his own good. Acts chapter 23, we learn about the Jews who took an oath that they would not eat or drink until Paul was dead. Remember that? I don't know necessarily what happened with them, but that was a foolish act of honor, foolish oath of integrity, right? Hymenaeus and Alexander mentioned in 1 Timothy. And this list also goes on and on and on. A person who lives a life that is characteristic of honor and integrity will invite scrutiny, avoid corrupting influences. They're going to love the fellowship of Christian brothers and sisters. They'll love the Lord's Day. They're going to honor it and live it with a clear conscience. This person will let his yes be yes and his no be no. He'll be a man of his word, a woman of her word, right? Both among believers as well as the world at large. Lastly, he will do as David does, as we read in verse 11 of Psalm 26. He says, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Folks, what we see is David purposing is my term. I probably heard it from somewhere, but purposing in his heart. He's making a solemn, honorable oath to walk in his integrity. And then he does it 
as his natural, habitual way of life. This integrity is founded not in ourselves, not in our own sinful pride, but rather in the steadfast holiness of God's character that he communicates to his beloved children. Remember always that people are watching, and we all have a circle of influence. So do you walk in integrity? You live a righteous life? Good. Keep praying for it and living in communion with God through his word and through his people. Remember always that you are only a short step away from disaster and you're losing all your credibility. So take heed, folks, lest you fall. I also want to say to those who may have lost their integrity, have you? Well, guess what? There's forgiveness. Call out to God in humble repentance and seek restoration. Repent to those to whom you have failed, that you have failed. Seek their trust, knowing and understanding, mainly that it will take time to have that trust restored, but it can be restored. Then purpose within your heart to live a godly, honorable life of integrity. Then go and do it, not in your strength, but in the strength of Christ this time. So let's pray. Our Lord, as you've brought your word to us this morning, I pray that every heart is challenged as mine is. As we gaze upon our own life and we take stock in how we have lived, how we have failed you at times, we have compromised our integrity. We have compromised that honor that has come from you. We have not lived by our honor. And we have not brought glory to your name. Father, today, I pray that each and every heart would be, just bow in humble repentance and to be eager to go and do the difficult thing and go to those who have been affected by that, by our unfaithfulness, and go and seek repentance or seek forgiveness. Father, I pray for restoration in that area. And I pray, oh God, I thank you that you have given us a good, solid foundation for our moral integrity. And that is your character and not ours. Lord, we always need to take heed lest we fall. Because, of course, Scripture goes on to say, talking about how no temptation has overtaken us. But at the same time, that is just talking about having all of our trust and all of our faith and all of our basis in you, help us to live a righteous life. And not if, but when we fail, may we always be quick to repent and never far away from, from honoring you, even in that situation. Be with us now, Lord. Keep our hearts and our minds pure as we go on. In Christ's name.